Okay, Judges chapter 7, we're going to begin reading in verse 12. A great story that I think has an appropriate lesson for us today. The title of my message, Broken Vessels. But before we begin, would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for today, for your love for us, for your great mercies toward us. Speak now, Lord, to us through your word. Lord, you're working in our lives in ways sometimes that we don't understand. This morning, I pray that you would give us some insight into what you may be doing in our lives today, what you certainly want to do in our lives in the future. Lord, we want to cooperate and submit to your plan for us and be the people that you really desire us to be. So work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Judges 7, beginning in verse 12, we read, Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. When Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian in the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled. I want to start this morning with a familiar nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But I've always wondered, why would anyone want to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Humpty was an egg. And eggs are supposed to be cracked, are they not? What good is an egg doing sitting on top of the wall in the first place? An egg needs to be broken and put in a pan and cooked. This past week, I ate at the Waffle House. And those are some people who know what to do with an egg. I mean, 
they crack open the shell and they spill out the insides into a pan and they fry it up and they stick it with some sausage and a slice of cheese and they slip it between two pieces of buttered toast. That's what you do with an egg. Humpty Dumpty never tasted so good. I suppose if Humpty were a human, we might regret his brokenness. Poor Humpty Dumpty would just be a shell of a man. I mean, the yoke would be on him, I'm sure. But Humpty Dumpty wasn't a man. He was an egg. And if an egg is to do any good, it has to be broken. Why would all the king's horses and all the king's men try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? The purpose of an egg is to provide nourishment. Thus, it is worthless unless it's broken. In fact, even good eggs like you and me, can't really be used to feed others and be digested until we've first been broken. It surprised me to learn that Humpty Dumpty, the nursery rhyme, has been around for at least a thousand years. Did you know that? Varying uh, versions of Humpty Dumpty appear in eight European languages. His story was first told in the form of a riddle. What, when broken, can never be repaired, not even by strong and wise individuals? And of course, every child today knows the answer is an egg. When Humpty Dumpty breaks, he breaks. And here's my question for us this morning. Why does Humpty need to be put back together again? Why this preoccupation with always wanting to fix broken stuff? My wife suffers from this obsession. Every time a household appliance breaks, she wants me to fix it immediately. I mean, the dishwasher breaks and she wants it fixed that very day. I don't understand why she can't seize the opportunity. Take a week or so. Enjoy the sensation of warm soap bubbles on her little fingers. I mean, think about this. When a woman pays for a manicure... The first thing the manicurist does is what? Soak her hands in warm water. Did you, do you realize that? I mean, what's the difference as far as I'm concerned? At the manicurist, it's called pampering. Why is that not the same experience when her fingers are in a kitchen sink? For some reason, it's just not as bearable. It's, it's matter of fact, unbearable. Why my wife can't just close her eyes and imagine her hands being massaged against those dishes, her cuticles being cleansed, I have no idea. But Kathy's adamant. She wants that broken dishwasher fixed. If something's broken, it needs to be fixed. And isn't this how we all think? When an item breaks, it should be repaired and returned to its original form. That is with two exceptions. Sit your Humpty Dumpty on the wall if you'd like, but I like mine scrambled or sunny side up. If an egg is to become most useful, it has to be broken and stay broken. And the same is true with the servant of God. Before God uses us, before we're fit to minister for Him, before we're edible and digestible to the people around us, we too have to be broken and stay broken. Remember how Jesus illustrated this truth? Before he miraculously multiplied the five loaves and the two fish and fed the vast crowd, Jesus did four things with these elements. 
In Luke 9, verse 16, we're told, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitudes. Notice what he did. He took, he blessed, he broke, and then he gave. And he does the same with you and me. He takes us out of the world and calls us to be his own. He blesses us in Christ. This is what we've been studying in the book of Ephesians. But then he breaks us of our pride and our self-sufficiency and gives us in service to others. Oh, we all love to be blessed and we want to serve. But in between the blessing and the giving, we have to be broken. You see, if Jesus gives us a way to a hungry world without us first being broken, we'll cause indigestion. If not outright strangulation, people will choke on your pride and your self-righteousness and your self-centeredness. You see, the witness of a person who's never been humbled and broken is hard to swallow. Such a person is tough to stomach. And if people can't swallow you, if they can't stomach you, they'll spit you out. To be used by God, we have to first be broken. An older version of the famous nursery rhyme reads, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Three score men and three score more cannot place Humpty Dumpty as he was before. And that's the point of our spiritual brokenness. God doesn't want us to remain as we were before. Realize God's love takes us just as we are and right where we're at. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us that way. Hey, ever watch a cook with a head of lettuce preparing a salad? She breaks it, and then she rips it apart, and she starts divvying it up into little pieces that are more easily digestible. And this is what the hands of God will do to you and me. A humble person goes down a lot smoother than a crusty, prideful person. If we want to be used by God, we'll submit to His breaking, and we'll learn to lean on him. Billy and Polly Williams have been my friends for 30 years. They've been members of our church for 30 years now. And the Williamses have one of the funniest stories I have ever heard told. One Sunday morning, they awoke to the sounds of laughter and giggling coming from their three-year-old son, Brandon. When they got up to check on him and to find out why he was so amused, they were shocked. You see, the day before, Polly had been to the grocery store and she'd stocked the refrigerator with several dozen eggs. And Brandon was now chasing the cat around the house trying to pelt him with the eggs. <laughs> and by the time they got wind of it, he had emptied the refrigerator, covered the walls and the furniture with several dozen eggs. Mom and Dad were horrified. But Brandon was delighted. He was having the time of his life. And hey, God is like Brandon. God likes to break eggs. Even good eggs like you and me. In fact, especially good eggs like the people in this room. For God knows that no matter how good you think you are, how sharp and skilled and spiritual you think you are, you are still not the person that he intends for you to be. 
And we first have to become a broken vessel. That's true of us all. Like Billy and Polly, when God starts breaking eggs, we shudder. We're horrified. We want him to stop. All we can focus on is the mess and the pain that we feel. But God has reasons for our brokenness. He knows the irony that our brokenness produces a blessedness. We learn many lessons from the story here of Gideon. But not the least of which is that God uses broken vessels. In Judges chapter 7, God wins a monumental victory that ends seven long years of Midianite oppression. And the decisive moment in the battle is when the army of Israel, they break their ceramic jars and they turn on the light. Brokenness brought blessing. And Gideon's story teaches us that the light of God most radiates from our lives. The light shines brightest when it shines through a broken vessel. Understand this Gideon, he was an unlikely hero. When God first called Gideon to serve him, the man was defeated, and he was frightened, and he was skeptical. It must have sounded like a big joke to him when God's messenger greeted him. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon had such a wobbly faith. He had a tough time believing God. He was reluctant to take God at his word. He was always asking for signs. He was always laying out fleeces before God. His faith had to be propped up with tangible evidence. In Judges 6, verse 39, Gideon throws out a woolen fleece and he proposes a test. When he awakes, if the usual happens, if the wool is wet from the dew, yet the ground around it is dry, something that would be strange, he'll know that God is with him. And God obliges. That's exactly what happens. He provides Gideon the green light. But it's still not enough for Gideon. Gideon's fable, fable, feeble faith needs more assurance from God. And so he asks God to reverse the special effects. This time, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And the next morning, God again does the miracle and signals a go. Gideon reminds me of a lady in our church who was struggling with this same issue in her life. She decided that she needed a sign from God before she moved in a particular direction. And that's how she was praying. Lord, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Until one day she was driving home in a thunderstorm when a huge gust of wind blew a metal sign off the front of a building. The sign flew across the street and smacked the front of her car as she was at the intersection. She said later, it was as if the Lord was saying, Okay, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. From then on, she was finished with asking for signs. She decided to just trust God and take Him at His word. In the Old Testament, God did indulge His people, His chosen people, like Gideon with signs. But after the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, God's people never again relied upon signs or fleeces to discern His will. Instead, the church was led by the Holy Spirit. Well, twice here in Judges chapter 7, God fortifies Gideon's anemic faith. The next thing that happens is Gideon goes down to spy out the enemy. He slips down the mountainside within earshot of two soldiers. He's close enough to eavesdrop in on their campfire conversation. And in verse 13, he hears one Midianite say to his buddy, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. 
Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Now how in the world this man identified the loaf of barley bread with Gideon, we're not told. Perhaps it was a divine revelation. But to me, this is an odd connection. A victorious army epitomized by a tumbling loaf of barley bread? That's strange. Imagine being an army battalion and having as your insignia, the banner under which you march into battle, a loaf of whole wheat bread. Really? A rolling loaf of barley bread? That's not a very intimidating mascot. Reminds me of the wimpy names adopted by some college football teams. Here's a list of the sissiest names in college football. Virginia Tech Hokies. What's a Hokie? Come on. Boston Terriers. Aren't you trembling in your boots before the Terriers? Oregon Ducks. Akron Zips. Presbyterian Blue Hose. I'm not even going there. I'd get in trouble. Maryland Terps. And my all-time favorite, Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. How do you get fired up for the banana slugs? But what if Gideon was coach of a football team? I mean, how does this sound for an intimidating, ferocious nickname? The Tumbling Barley Loaves. Come on. Imagine the alumni getting whipped up into a frenzy over the fighting donuts or the battling bagels. And yet I can't think of a more fitting name for Gideon's outmatched army. You recall the story? Gideon ended up with just 300 soldiers. It was reverse recruitment by God. God sent 32,000 of the men home. He didn't even want them to start. The Midianites had 135,000 troops. Gideon was outnumbered 450 to 1. And the men that God left Gideon weren't exactly trained professionals. You see, a good soldier is always on the lookout. He's conscious of what's going on around him. When he drank from a spring, he would drop to one knee. He would cup his hands and he would bring the water to his mouth. His head was high. His eyes were open. His guard was up. But Gideon's 300 men were the guys who took a drink of water by sticking their heads in the spring and lapping it up like a dog. Not a very good picture of alertness and vigilance. These Hebrew troops, they were sloppy and they were untrained. Yep, the rolling jelly rolls sounds like an appropriate name for Gideon's team. But here's what God was up to. Earlier in the story, God gives us reasons for why he thinned out the troops. In chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Oh, God knew the glory-grabbing hearts of these Hebrew people. That's why he stacked the table against them. He created astronomical odds, a preposterous situation, circumstances so impossible, a scenario so strange, that when the Hebrews were successful, there could be no other explanation in anyone's mind than God's intervention. He wanted there to be no doubt as to the author of this victory. 
God ensured that he would get all of the credit. And that's the reason behind the ammunition Gideon issues his troops. Don't look for hand grenades and M16s and missile launchers here. There aren't even any swords or spears or shields. No, God outfits his troops with a jar, with a torch, and with a trumpet. Imagine going into battle with a bottle, a blaze, and a bugle. How's that for some real firepower? Gideon's army was the military equivalent of a jelly roll. But realize this is the beginnings of brokenness. You see, when we come to God, we receive the forgiveness of our sins. We're set free to know and to follow God. We love Him and we desire to serve Him. But we're still so full of ourselves, are we not? We haven't yet realized how self-confident and self-sufficient we are. Oh, we step out to serve the Lord, but we serve Him in the way that we've always served ourselves. Rather than rely on Him, we have the attitude, Oh, I can do this. I'm resourceful. I'm I'm a can-do person. Oh, if God wants to help me, He can. That'll be fine. But I can do this if I work hard enough at it. And that's the attitude that God intends to break. You see, he wants to teach us that spiritual, eternal business is never accomplished through material and human means. A true work of God is always a work of His Holy Spirit. We bring God nothing that He doesn't already possess. The work depends on Him, not us. Our role is minor. In January 2000, an Arizona State basketball player named Eddie House scored an unbelievable 61 points in a game against California. By himself, Eddie put up more points that night than 55 other NCAA teams scored the same night. After the game, one of Eddie's teammates, Justin Allen, who scored just three points in the game, he made the statement, Now I can tell my grandkids that Eddie House and I combined for 64 points against Cal. (laughs) I mean, Eddie can't miss. He's lighting up the scoreboard for 61 points while Justin sinks a single basket. And they both combine for 64. Yep, sounds just like us, doesn't it? God scores 61, I chip in my three, but we've combined for 64. Oh, sure. Yes, our walk with God is two-sided. God has a part and we have a part. But compared to God's role, our part is umpoco. All the credit belongs to God. It's brokenness that keeps me from getting my grubby hands on the glory. Paul Harvey tells of a sign he saw in an automobile repair shop. The sign read, labor, $10 per hour. This was some time ago. If you watch, $12 per hour. If you help, $15 per hour. If you worked on it first, then brought it in, $27.50 per hour. And I think that kind of sums up God's opinion on the importance of our contribution. When we overstep our bounds and inflate our importance, we make God's job more difficult. Never forget, we're the fighting jelly rolls, okay? And yes, God uses jelly rolls, but not because He needs them. But in so doing, 
He ensures that all the glory will go to Him. Well, when Gideon overhears the Midianite interpret this dream as a victory for the Lord and for Gideon, he's encouraged. He returns to his troops and he mobilizes them for battle. But you'll never believe their battle plan. Following God's instruction, Gideon gives to each of his 300 men a trumpet and a torch. The torch probably consisted of some smoldering rags on the end of a stick. The stick was turned upside down and stuck into the neck of a ceramic jar. The torch was in the jar, but you couldn't see the blaze until the jar had been broken. The 300 Hebrews, they spread out around the Midianite camp. And then on cue, as a single man, they blew their trumpets. They broke their clay jars, and they all shouted in unison, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Now try to picture in your mind what happened when each of Gideon's men broke his clay jar. You see, the rush of oxygen into the jar would have fueled the smoldering rags. It would have instantly poof, set their torch ablaze. Thus, the sleepy Midianites, they awoke to see 300 blazing torches all around them. Now, you should know that in ancient times, a battalion of a thousand men would march behind a single torch. Thus, the groggy Midianites panicked. Their imaginations ran wild. They thought they were outnumbered and surrounded. Many of the Midianites retreated. Other soldiers were so discombobulated, they drew their swords on each other. Thousands of men were slain by friendly fire. Gideon calls for the backups, and then he mops up. The Midianites were defeated by the sword of the Lord. To God be the glory, great things he had done. But I want to focus this morning on what happened to those 300 clay jars in the hands of Gideon's men. For to me, this is the one detail in the story that's a microcosm of the whole battle. You could say, the lights on the mountainside defeated Midian. Oh yes, the trumpet blast, the shout of triumph surely played a role, but their effect was temporary. I mean, the blast and the shout lasted only a few seconds, but the torches... They stayed aglow. The mountain lit up. It was ablaze, and it convinced the Midianites that they were dead meat. And let me remind us, God has called each one of us to do the same, to shine His light, a light of love and truth into our dark world. This is our job. And yet all too often, we forget our calling. Both individually and collectively, the church exists to shine the light of God into this world. Hey, we reflect the sun, do we not? God's sun, Jesus Christ. And yet all too often, rather than shine the light, we stomp off in a righteous rage to try to stomp out the darkness. Hey, shining the light is our job, not stomping out the darkness. That's not our job description. God hasn't called us to stomp out the darkness. He's called us to simply shine His light. You know, too often the church is like the man who walked into a dark room and he started flailing away, swatting at the darkness. I mean, he flailed and swatted until he collapsed in exhaustion and yet the room was just as dark as it had been when he started. His efforts were futile. But then another man came into the same dark room and all he did was simply flip on the switch Instantly, the room was flooded with light. 
and the darkness dissipated. And the moral of the story is clear. We win over the spiritual darkness around us, not by fighting and flailing at the darkness, but by faithfully and brightly shining the light of God's love and truth to the people around us. But here's the secret to our shining. Here's how you and I can shine spiritually, can shine more brightly. Flames burn brightest from a broken vessel. You see, some of you are carrying around inside your heart smoldering flames. Just like the smoldering rags in Gideon's jar. You're ready to blaze up for Jesus. But first you need to be broken. If left enclosed in the jar, the fire that's been kindled will diminish. But if the vessel gets broken, the oxygen will rush to the smoldering rags and ignite a red heart blaze. The rushing mighty wind of the Holy Spirit will fuel that fire in your heart and you'll shine brighter through a broken vessel. Paul uses this idiom of clay jars in reference to the Christian in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. There we read, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, we're all jars of clay. Oh, we're ugly and thick and uncouth and simple and prideful and selfish and stubborn and hard and determined to have things our own way. And the light of God can't shine from us until that vessel has first been broken. But once the shattering starts and we realize how dependent and how needy we are, that's when the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit rushes through and fuels the flame. You see, clay jars don't let in the air until they're first cracked. And that's why your brokenness is actually the Holy Spirit's big break. It allows Him to ignite and fan the flame of passion for God in your heart. It's brokenness that turns up the light. You know, as kids, we used to play and assemble balsa wood airplanes. Do you remember these things? They came as single sheets of balsa wood. The wings and the fuselage, they were outlined by perforations in the sheets of flimsy wood. And so the perforated lines kind of showed you where you needed to break off the, the excess and where you could you know, get the sheets and, and actually make the parts for the plane. And did you know that in the same way, God knows exactly where you and I need to be broken? Did you know He's already outlined the strongholds of pride and self-centeredness in your life? Oh yeah, you're a nice guy. You're a cordial, amiable person. Just as long as nobody bothers your blank. And you got a blank. I got a blank. We all got a blank. And you can be sure that God will zero in on your blank. God knows that our attitude, our perspective in that particular area of life can't be reassembled according to His specs until it first undergoes some brokenness. Understand, God is an expert at orchestrating just the right circumstances to cause and create our brokenness. He can fashion the situation. 
He adds the appropriate pressure. God has identified what forces will bring us to the end of our resources and teach us how much we need Him. God knows how to break flimsy balsa wood into pieces that He can reassemble and make to fly. But here's a soul-searching question. Will you submit to God's breaking? Or will you hold on to your pride? Are you determined to keep a stiff upper lip? You've thought about just riding out the storm. I'll just endure these tough times I'm facing. Eventually, I'll return to business as usual. I'll be restored to my place back up on that wall. But what if God doesn't want Humpty Dumpty? Or you or me back in our original place? What if God wants us to stay broken and humble and pliable and thus usable? Here's a great quote by Oswald Chambers. He says, God can never make us whine if we object to the fingers He uses to crush us. If God would only use His own fingers and make us broken bread in a special way. But when He uses someone we dislike or a set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit and make those the crushers, we object. We must never choose the scene of our own martyrdom. In other words, God knows how to turn up the heat. God knows the perforations, the lines in your life that He needs to break to make you fly. He uses people in our lives, or our job, or an automobile accident, or a conflict with a friend, or perhaps a financial reversal, maybe some professional disappointment. Even the dissolving of a relationship that was important to you. He uses these things to chisel away at areas of our life that are cold and callous and carnal. God knows how and when to pound down on us until His pounding produces its desired results. I've heard it said, a $5 iron bar can be pounded into a couple of $10 horseshoes. Or that same bar can be pounded further into $350 worth of needles. Or that same bar can be pounded even further into $250,000 worth of fine watch springs. It all depends on the amount of pounding you're willing to provide. There's another Old Testament character. His name was Job. And he knew he was being pounded by the calamities that he had experienced. And that's why Job said to his friends in Job 23, verse 10, When God has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. He knew that God, even though it hurt, even though it was difficult, God was doing a great work in him. And here's God's word to us as individuals and to us as a church. If we submit to God's breaking in our lives... God promises not to put us back as we were before. He'll make us better. He'll turn us from clay into gold. God used an army of broken vessels to win the victory in Gideon's day. And He wants our church to have a similar posture. He wants us to be an army of broken vessels. Hey, we might be the tumbling jelly rolls. I'm not sure. But I know this. God can do something great through us. We'll be humble and broken before Him. Not proud, not haughty, but broken and submissive and surrendered to God. Is that your heart today?
we should be eager to do battle for God, eager to see God's work done, and eager to see Him get all the glory. And He will, if we'll be broken vessels. I heard it said once, when God wants to drill a man, and thrill a man, and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play a noble part, when He yearns with all His heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, watch His efforts, watch His ways. How ruthlessly he perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. How he uses whom he chooses and with every act induces him to try his splendor out. Oh, God knows what he's about. God knows precisely what we need to have happen in our lives to be the person that he desires. You see, here's our choice. Brokenness or barrenness. And there's no in-between. You and I, oh, we can sign up on a list and we can serve God in various ways. We can do things for God without His breaking. But those things won't count for any eternal value. God won't use us for the purposes He's designed until we've first been broken. When the vessels of Gideon were smashed and that surge of air hit those smoldering rags inside the jars... An explosion occurred. The torch is ignited with a blaze. And that's what God wants to see happen in us. Let's not be hard-boiled. Humpty Dumpty did nobody any good stubbornly sitting on the wall. God doesn't want good eggs as much as He wants broken eggs. Your life will be far more meaningful and purposeful if you submit to the Lord's fingers. If you let him beat you down and then build you up into the person he desires. I know it's hard. When God pounds away, it isn't always pleasant. His crushing can be painful. But God can't assemble us to fly until we've first been broken. And broken in just the right places. The message from Gideon is this. Submit to the breaking Let God be your adequacy. God wants your life to count, but He only uses broken vessels. Today, let's all join the tumbling jelly rolls. How about it?